0: If you would turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. I have a lot that I would like to say tonight, but I'm not going to because I don't want to break down before I ever get started. So we're just going to jump right in, okay? General George Washington, we all know who he is. He was concerned all the time about spies. They were a constant problem except for when they were on the move. Uh, when the armies were on the move, he knew he couldn't stop all of the spies. So he decided to do what has become pretty commonplace and give false information. Misinformation was the best defense for him. And so with that in mind, on December the 12th of 1776, he told Colonel John Cadwallader, I don't know if I said that right or not, of the Philadelphia Associators of the Pennsylvania Militia this. He said, keep a good lookout for spies and endeavor to magnify your numbers wherever possible. And this was a ploy he would use over and over and over again. Create false troop information. Inflate the size and give the opposing Uh, Side The the wrong location for his forces Give them all kinds of misinformation For the spies to then discover And to report back Well all of this misinformation Would come in handy Very helpful a couple of weeks later Some spies Passed along some information That Washington's plans Were to cross the Delaware River And attack the Hessian troops That were stationed on the other side At Trenton So they passed on this accurate information, but because of the history of the misinformation, it was not taken quite as seriously. In addition to that, there was a series of false alarms that took place, and there was a growing storm that was about to take place, and so it lulled the Hessian defenders into believing that there was no attack coming that night, despite the contrary information from the spies. But as we know, on Christmas Day, George Washington led his army, who was, uh, it's the middle of winter, they're, they're cold, they're, they're nearly naked, all their clothing is threadbare, led them to cross the freezing river and to brave the wind and the hail to cross aside and then to march nine miles through the snow, leaving bloody footprints in their wake. And at dawn the next morning, the Americans attacked the Hessians, taking them by surprise and capturing 900 out of 1,000 in a complete rout. It was the turning point of the revolution. But there's a history of this kind of misinformation and, and spies and all of this that's going on. And as we look at the book of Joshua... We're going to see a couple of spies that Joshua sends. We'll talk more about them in just a moment. But before we do that, last week we looked at the story of Moses giving the second call, or giving the call to the second generation of Israelites as they prepared to go into the promised land. Remember that Moses would not be able to go into the promised land because he had struck the rock in anger. And remember also that the, the people would be led By God through the person of Joshua to go into the land of Canaan and to capture the cities that were already there. Well, the first city that they would need to conquer is Jericho, which is commonly believed to be the world's most ancient city. It was heavily fortified. It was guarded. It guarded the entrance to the land of Canaan as you came in from the east. And not knowing what was to lay ahead, Joshua did what any good general would do, and he sent spies in to go gain some information on the city. And let's pick up that story in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 1. We'll read for now through verse 7. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go find the land, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me. But I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. So, First, we have this covert assignment, right? Joshua sends two spies to scope out Jericho. Now, remember, the first time that Israel came to the land, to the border of Canaan, Moses sent spies in the land. Do you remember how many he sent? How many? Twelve. He sent twelve. And how many came back with a good report? Two, right? Do you remember who those two were? Caleb and Joshua. Joshua is now leading. And this time Joshua secretly, it says, remember they came back, the the 12 spies came back and they reported to the whole nation of Israel. But Joshua says they secretly sent them out. The phrasing likely here means that he didn't let the rest of Israel know what was going on. He sent them. Not everybody needs to know everything. I need to know this information, though. You go get it and come back and report to me. So he's being somewhat strategic here, a little bit more than what happened earlier. Now, we don't know the names of these spies from Scripture. As far as we know, they're two unnamed men. But if you look at the Midrash, it identifies these two men. One of them was the other spy, Caleb. The other was another man that we're familiar with in Scripture, whose name is Phinehas. Anybody remember anything about Phinehas? Remember they he shoved a spear through the woman and helped them not sub- go into the uh, marriage with the, the Canaanites? So point being, these two men, if they are who the Midrash says, had already proved themselves to be faithful men to God. So Joshua sends these spies, and it's not... Out of a lack of faith in God, but rather it's it's an active demonstration of his faith in what God has said. It's a demonstration of this true and active faith in what God had said in the previous chapter. Look back with me real quick, Joshua chapter 1, and verses 2 through 5. He says, This Moses, this is God speaking, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. So taking this command from God and believing and trusting in it, Moses says, okay, let's, let's make a battle plan. Let's go get information so that we can go in. And so his use of common sense and his caution to here actually demonstrates his faith in what God has said. And he sends out these spies to go gather the information that he needs. And the spies come to Rahab's house. Now, Rahab here is described as a harlot or a prostitute. Um, She's also described as the owner of the house. So um, most scholars think that it is likely that she was the manager of a brothel. Uh, This would make sense in an ancient Near Eastern context where many times travelers would go uh, from town to town and they would lodge in the brothel there. Uh, But her house was on the city wall, and scholars believe it was also near the city gate, which would make it convenient for travelers and would also allow her to stay well-informed of what's going on as people are coming in and out. Well, back to the men. While the men may have been faithful, they were apparently not very good spies. They were not very secretive. They were quickly found out, we find in verse 2, that uh, the king told it was told to the king of Jericho that these men from Israel had come. So fairly quickly in the story, they are found out. Word comes to the king, and he immediately sends word to Rahab. Now, while if you're a good storyteller, you would expect this to have some narrative tension, right? These spies are going in, and they're trying to hide and be secretive, but yet, oh no, they're found out. You would expect there to be some tension here, but That's not really what the author is focused on. So this whole story here really moves pretty rapidly. Uh, These men probably, these spies probably thought their goose was cooked, but instead Rahab sends the king's men on a wild goose chase. So, uh, and how does she do so? With some believable words of misinformation. She doesn't deny that the men came. She says they came. I didn't know who they were. Then she gives the misinformation. I, they went out and went that way. So God already had an agent on the inside, already somebody that would work in their favor. She hid these men and the flax or the, the dried grasses on her roof while the king's men went in hot pursuit of them in the wrong direction. Going towards, now this is the logical direction. They're going towards the Jordan, where if they're going back to report to Joshua, that would make sense. That's the way they would go. But that's not the way they went. They're still hiding. So as soon as the pursuers then left the city, night came and this heavily fortified city shut their gates with the men still inside. But the question arises, why was Rahab this Seemingly well-connected and fairly wealthy woman for an ancient Near Eastern context. Why was she helping these spies? Well, we find out in the next couple of next few verses. Look at me beginning in verse 8. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Now, we had a covert mission, covert assignment, but now we've got something overt here. We've got an overt confession. As Dr. Spivey opened up our service with Hebrews chapter 11, we find Rahab in what we call the hall of faith. Her emphasis there is on her actions regarding these spies. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. And James also talks about her actions. And we see these external things that are happening that they can look at and say, look at what she did. But her faith was not merely based on external action. What we find in these verses is a Rahab's confession of a fundamental change in her religious beliefs. Remember back in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 10. The Lord told the people, I am making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform miracles that have never been performed anywhere in the earth or in any nation. And all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power I will display for you. Rahab and apparently all of the citizens of Canaan had heard stories about Israel's God. Specifically, they heard about what God did to that mighty nation Egypt when they went across the Red Sea on dry land so many years before. But then more recently, she had heard about the resounding defeat of the Canaanite kings, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. These events had made quite the impression upon them. All of the people had heard of Israel's God, and what does it say? They were afraid. They were terrified The king of Jericho was apparently so concerned, so afraid of Israel, and so were the people. But this prostitute, this woman of ill repute, had come to a personal conviction. And we find this in verse 11, the most remarkable statement from the mouth of a foreigner. She understands that her own land is going to be given to... To this nation. And she confesses. The Lord your God. He is God. In heaven. Above and on earth beneath. So this, this pagan prostitute. Though she was raised. Worshipping all these Canaanite gods. And she knew. Uh, that this was not what. They were supposed to say. Right? This, this power that she's. Ascribing to Yahweh. Is the power that Baal and Asherah and all these other gods were supposed to have. But she says that Yahweh, the king of the Israelites, against her own religious traditions, she says that he is the Lord above all. And although she had not been there to hear it, what she actually says sounds quite familiar if we look back at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Remember there it says, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. She claimed Yahweh. She claimed Israel's God was indeed the only God. She saw that Baal and Asherah and Marduk and Ishtar, none of these had power like what Yahweh has. And so she says, Yahweh, and Yahweh alone is God. Her confession here also echoes the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 and verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says, Know therefore today and take it into your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on earth Below, there is no other. So her confession is that God, Yahweh, is the one true God. And here she's she's not just trying to save her bacon from what's about to come. She acknowledged God is the one and the only one worthy of worship. And the one who is worthy of her allegiance. And as we look at this in the story of Israel and, and the way they didn't have faith. Rahab was not there to taste the manna. She never saw the cloud of the glory of God. She had never even read Israel's law that we are aware of. And yet, her faith is greater than that whole previous generation of Israelites. Well, having spared the spies' lives by hiding them, she makes a request I spared your life. I have treated you with kindness. Will you do the same to me and to my family? Now remember, she had already basically surrendered everything she had by saving these spies. She's actively showing her faith in what Yahweh is going to do. And she has no guarantee that anything's going to happen. She has no guarantee that God is going to save her from destruction. She has no guarantee that these men will return her kindness. She's already done this. And yet, she says after this, would you make a covenant with me? Would you save me and my family from the coming destruction? Now, there's a bit of a problem here. We don't really see a whole lot of this, but God had prohibited the Israelites from entering into an agreement or uh, to make promises with any of the Canaanites. And in fact, some biblical scholars criticize this whole story because of that fact, that they should not be willing to make an agreement with her because she is a Canaanite. In fact, if you look forward a few chapters, we see what happens with the Gibeonites and when they do make a, an agreement with the Canaanite nation, and it ends up blowing up in their faces. But I think one thing that the scholars that are on that side of the argument miss is what we just looked at, this confession. Because that's what makes the essential difference. She has confessed Israel's God. And by making such a confession, she has changed allegiances. She has made herself like an Israelite. She cast her lot with God, with Yahweh, not with The Canaanites' idols and their false gods. So, therefore, the spies are not guilty of breaking the command that God gave them because she was, in effect, and based upon her confession, an Israelite already. Rather, this shows God's inclusion to all who would accept Him and confess Him as sovereign Lord. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school that God accepts all, no matter your background no matter if you're a prostitute, no matter if you're a murderer, no matter what sin you have committed, God accepts you if you confess him as your Lord and Savior. And that's what she has done here. But let's continue reading in verse 14. How did the men respond? the men said to her, "'Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, "'and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land "'that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you.' "'Then she let them down by a rope through the window, "'for her house was on the city wall, "'so that she was living on the wall. "'And she said to them, "'Go to the hill country, "'so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, "'and hide yourselves there for three days "'until the pursuers return.' Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down, and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street His blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, and his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So now we have a covenant. have a promise. The spies agree to her request, but it's more than just a simple agreement. It's really more than just a simple covenant because there's a significant Old Testament word that's used here. It's used a few times, and you're probably familiar with the word. The word is kesed. What does kesed mean? It means a faithful love, and it's most frequently used in the Old Testament to refer to God's kind of love. But Rahab, in verse 12, when she made her request, this is the word that she used when it talks about, I've treated you kindly. She says, I have treated you with Kessid. Now, the spies return this word back to her. If Rahab does not betray them, they enter into a kessed covenant with her. Now, there are several conditions that mark this covenant. First, Rahab must help them escape. She must keep their secret. She must also stay in her house. She must gather all of her family into her house, and they must not leave from her house if they are to be protected. And she must have, what's the requirement for a covenant? What must you have? A symbol or a sign of the covenant. So what's the symbol the scarlet cord that will be hung in the window. Now, does this sound any way familiar? If you're reading this, you should be thinking back to the Passover instructions we looked at a few weeks ago. You remember what God told Israel? Stay in the house, be ready to go, put the blood of the Passover lamb on the lintels and frames of your house, of your doors, so that the judgment will pass over you. So this covenant that's between Rahab and these spies, it looks very similar. There's a connection between Rahab and Israel. And so this scarlet cord is somewhat an antitype, but as has been the case from early on in Christian tradition, it's also a type. It's a biblical type that looks forward. See, this scarlet cord saves an undeserving woman, a woman who's been living long in sin, and who, as a pagan prostitute, is up to the mercy and grace of God what's going to happen. And likewise, salvation comes to us, an undeserving people, sinners like you and like me, through God's mercy and his grace, through the scarlet blood of Jesus that was shed upon the cross. And we celebrate his coming at this time of year. See, Rahab let the spies down through the window, the same window through which they would be able to see the cord. Now, scholars disagree on this, whether this cord should be considered a type, but I think it is. I think there's significance in everything that's in Scripture. And the color of the cord represents the scarlet thread that goes throughout all of the Bible that points to the historical event of Jesus' death on the cross. Well, Rahab let these spies down out of her window, the same window which she would put the cord in, which was on the city wall and directed them to go the opposite direction. Don't go straight to Joshua. Go out the opposite way. Go into the hill country. Hide out there for three days until your pursuers have given up on you. And then we see in verse 22. The spies departed and came to the hill country. So they did what she'd ask. she had re- asked. They remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but they had not found them. Then, verse 23, the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. So they bring a confident report. This chapter wraps up pretty quickly. They leave, they do as Rahab had told them, instead of going east toward the Jordan River, they went west towards the hills of the Jordan, where they waited for three days for the heat to die down a bit. And then when they come to Joshua, the report of these two faithful spies really isn't a very good report if you're looking for information about the city. They they don't come and give a detailed analysis of the terrain and, and what all they're going to need to be able to go in and to take this city. What they do bring is a report that is very different from the report from 40 years earlier. It's not one of great detail about the land, but it does speak directly to their faith in God. And it speaks confidently about God's promise They basically come in and say, listen, we went and spied. The details don't matter. God has given us this land. Let's go take it. That's their report. So this episode that they had with Rahab and and her report of the people is taken faithfully. And they go and say, listen, God has promised this. Rahab's this whole situation has confirmed it. Let's go into the land and take it. Well, let's look at a bit of an epilogue from chapter 2. The next couple of chapters uh, basically tell of the people crossing the Jordan River in the same way or similar way to what God had done before. And Joshua chapter 4 summarizes, verse 23, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, (laughs) imagine being a citizen of Jericho in this situation. You're already afraid, as we've seen. There's already fear about these reports because the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea and defeated, God had defeated the Egyptians through that. And they'd already heard about these other kings that had been defeated. And then you watch as the people of Israel cross the Jordan River in exactly the same way. Little frightening, coming straight at you. And you anticipate what's coming next. And so, afraid of the people of Israel, it says Jericho prepared for siege, they locked down the doors. And God led Joshua. To take the people and follow his commands to walk around the city silently once a day for six days. And we're all familiar with this story. And then on the seventh day, they march silently around the city seven times. And then the last they all the people shout while the priests blow their trumpets. And what happens? The walls come tumbling down, except for one location. Do you remember what that one location is? Rahab's house. She and those who were with her were the only ones that survived. Look with me, Joshua chapter 6, verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there, as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father, and her mother, and her brothers, and all she had. And they brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. Why were they placed outside the camp of Israel? They needed to go through some purification process before they could fully be part of Israel, and we later see they are. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord." However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived where? In the midst of Israel till this day. They moved from outside into the camp. She has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, in 1907 or so, Some 1907, 1909, some German archaeologists found the city of Jericho and they began excavating the site. And they found a section of the wall that had not collapsed. And then in the 1950s, Kathleen Kenyon went and began to do a re excavation of the site with more modern methods, modern 1950s methods. And she wrote in her report the following The destruction was complete. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire, and every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt. So we see that goes along with what the story tells us. But archaeologists have also found along the northern wall of Jericho a standing section that is about eight foot tall, and there is a house that is built against the wall. That was found to be intact. And of course, that in itself is an amazing find. Archaeology giving evidence to the truth of the biblical account. But what I find even more amazing than that is what we find in the New Testament. If you go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5 it says this. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And who was Jesse the father of? David. In the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, we find that God brought Rahab into the family of Israel and gave her a Jewish husband. And they had a son named Boaz. And from that union... By the way, Boaz married another foreign woman named Ruth... Another woman who was brought in by her confession that God is her God came King David and eventually Jesus our Lord. So Rahab was turned from a heathen harlot into a messianic matron. And the same, well not the same, but similar stories can be told of us. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their physical circumcision, even though it only affected their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But God works in his mighty ways to give us his grace. And the other residents of of Jericho could have done exactly the same thing that Rahab did. They could have responded in faith, but Rahab says all of the people are afraid. They're living in fear. And they died in that fear. So if you're without Christ... You also will perish. But in Christ Jesus, you can be brought into the household of faith. Listen to how Paul wraps up that that section and then we'll close. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile both in one body to God through the cross, by having it put to death, the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access to the Spirit, in one Spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building... Being fitted together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you're also being built together in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for this story from the book of Joshua and the story of Rahab, how you took someone who was broken, a broken vessel, as we sang earlier, a broken man, a broken woman, Lord, you use those kind of people. You bring us into your kingdom. Every one of us is a sinner who have rebelled against you and broken your laws. Lord, we are all broken and we are only made complete by the power of your son Jesus and his death upon the cross. Lord, we thank you for the scarlet thread that we have, the sign of the covenant, the blood of Jesus. Lord, if anyone is here or online, who has not accepted Christ and become part of the household of faith, I pray that today they would do so. Lord, I pray that you would give us all your peace. I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrill Street Baptist Church has six church goals. To reach the lost for Christ. To learn more about Christ. To touch the city through Christ. To train leaders to serve Christ. To embrace the world with Christ. And to build strong families in Christ. Please join us
1: for our next episode. Thank you, Joel, for literally tying the knot tonight. (laughs) You know, um, there's so many reflections, I think, that we can make on what was said tonight, and he has summed it up beautifully, so I can't add much. I would say this in closing, you know, um, John said, you know, that God could raise up children of Abraham out of what? Out of these stones. So who is a child of Abraham? Jesus said to the Pharisees and those that doubted him, he said that Abraham uh, looked toward his coming. Abraham, in fact, was destined to become a child of God through Christ, even though Abraham didn't know it. What was really striking to me, everything you said was profound, but what was really striking to me was when he said, when did Rahab become an Israelite? She wasn't circumcised. She became a child of Abraham and therefore Jacob, in Israel when she did what? When she trusted and when she obeyed. Do you think that Rahab was expecting those spies to show up that day? No. But if you're watching tonight, you may not be expecting God to show up. But God may already be at work in your life. Because the Bible says this, you know, when uh, uh, Peter went to see Fella in Capernaum, who was a centurion, who was an outsider, who was an alien, even though he was a God-fearer, what did Peter say? He said, I know this, God's not a respecter of persons, but to those who fear him and do what is right, he is what? He is welcoming. And tonight is the same. If you fear God and you want to do what is right... He is welcoming to you, and he will make you not only a child of Abraham, but a child of the one who made Abraham, and that's Jesus Christ. And to do right is what? The same thing that Rachel did. What did she do? She obeyed. She trusted, and then she obeyed. The invitation, we pray, that you will consider during this season of Advent. And may God bless you and keep you throughout this season of hope in him.